I can't get enough. Got a space in my tackle box, just got to fill it up. More love, I can't ever stop. Don't got a basement, got an underground tackle shop. I am Lucy, the Lorematic computer. Welcome to the Lure Love Podcast with your hosts, John, Crappy Hippie King, and Tim, Tacklebox Beat. So I got a message the other day from Donald Collette from Brooks, Maine. He told me that the Lure Love Podcast has been featured on the Bent Podcast. That is impressive. The Bent Podcast is part of the Meat Eater Network of Programs. That's right. The Bent Podcast started about the same time that we began the Lure Love Podcast as a segment on the Fish Nerds Podcast. I've always liked Bent because they covered a lot of different fishing types and styles from hardcore crappy jiggers to dry fly purists to offshore tuna addicts. And in the episode Donald told us about, the hosts Joe Cermelli and Hayden Samick discussed our research about the International Game Fish Association fishing records analyzed by lure type. We've mentioned that our research was picked up by newspapers across the country, and Joe Cermelli read about it in one of those newspapers. Wow, those guys are pretty well-known anglers, aren't they? They sure are. Joe Cermelli is Meat Eater's senior fishing editor, and he's based on the East Coast. He's written a lot of books about angling, and he's the former fishing editor of Field and Stream and Outdoor Life. His original co-host was Miles Nolte, who's an outdoor writer, editor, and a fishing guide. And Miles is the former angling editor of Gray Sporting Journal, really prestigious journal. And when Miles moved to New Zealand, he was replaced by Hayden Samick, an outdoor writer who lives in Bozeman, Montana. Okay, so what did they have to say about our research? Let me cue it up for you. Personally, I was a little insulted by part of it. Really? What did they say, Lucy? Here's what they said about our lure research. So how fitting that I close with a record story of sorts. But it's not about a specific record or fish, but records in general. And doing this to ensure that you walk away from my final news filing with information that you can use to better yourself on the water. That is that is the bent seal of approval. Uh, anyway, so this comes from the uh, Duluth News Tribune, and it's about data collected by the Lure Love podcast. And what they've done is compiled the most detailed list of record-setting lures I've ever seen. Now, this, mind you, <laughs> is a pretty painstaking process because my understanding, while the International Game Fish Association keeps the records, uh, the things that caught each fish are not set up in a database that can be searched or ranked by bait, fly, or lure, which means whoever runs that podcast did this manually. They said that we analyzed the data manually. The data wasn't even analyzed humanly. It was analyzed by me. Lucy, the Lure-Matic computer. I am queen of Lure data analytics and empress of all tackle shops. Yet they had the audacity to say that the analysis was done manually. Sheesh. All right, okay, I can see why you're a bit miffed, but, you know, in Joe and Hayden's defense, you are one of a kind and something really new to most of our listeners. Anyway, let's just move on, Lucy. I also noticed that you had to bleep out a few of Joe's words. Yes. While the Bent podcast is very high quality, with interesting segments, and a lot of humor, it also brought fishing podcasts cursing to a whole new level. 
I guess that's why they call their listeners degenerate anglers. Would you like me to create a breakdown of their cursing by word, phrase, and co-host? No, Lucy, that's not necessary. Okay, Tim. But just as an FYI, there were 19,660 records in the IGFA record fish database, and the database of curse words used on the Bent podcast was larger. That's a lot for 88 episodes. Okay, so what did they say about our lure research? You mean my lure research? They loved me? They really loved me. Here are a few clips. Here's a quote from the story. The folks at Lure Love Podcast looked at 19,600 records for 1,649 species of fresh and saltwater fish, including 6,714 current record holders and 12,946 retired record fish that once held the record but have since been beaten. Now, the caveat here is that there are no requirements for the level of detail an angler has to provide the IGFA when he or she submits a catch. So as the story notes, some records simply say lore in the space on the form for what caught the fish. So the fellows at Lore Love collected all this data, factored in some of these vague entries, did a little scratch math, and they came up with a few different lists. When Joe says, the fellas, he means Lucy the Lorematic computer. And props to the Lore Love podcast boys for doing all that painstaking work so somebody else like me or Hayden didn't have to. If you missed my complete analysis, just listen to podcast episode number 18. Wow, they really did like your research. Yes, they did. But there was some very sad news in the episode, too. Joe announced that the Bent podcast is ending, and they've already published their final episode. It's really, it's too bad because... They were a very unique fishing podcast. One thing I loved is that Joe said he wanted the end of their podcast to be a celebration of life, kind of like a New Orleans funeral. Searching for funeral eulogy templates, downloading template, filling in template. Should I proceed? A funeral template? Uh, Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. I'd like to begin by thanking everyone for coming to celebrate the Bent Podcast's life. The Bent Podcast was the second, or maybe third, most interesting fishing podcast I've ever known, and I know many of you would agree. The Bent Podcast was born in August 2020, at Meat Eater headquarters. It was the baby in the Meat Eater family. Bent is survived by six podcasts, and a cornucopia of other media programs. One of my favorite memories of the Bent Podcast was the story about a fishing guide's client pooping in the live well. The Bent Podcast was not industrious or hardworking. Each week it was like a lazy, slovenly drive to your favorite fishing hole. Bent never won a Nobel Prize or a Grammy. But in my heart, if I had a heart, the Bent Podcast was always a winner. In its free time, the Bent Podcast liked to fish, or prepare to go fishing, or talk about fishing, just like all the rest of us. The world is a sadder place without the Bent Podcast in our lives. But I hope that every listener of the Bent Podcast will fill that void by listening to the Lore Love Podcast, so we can attract large sponsor deals and buy more fishing gear. I think the Bent Podcast would have wanted that. John, hand me a tissue. That was beautiful. Oh, here you go, man. Here, just just take the whole box. Okay, now, how about we give Bent Podcast a 21-gun salute? We are not a hunting podcast, John. We are a fishing podcast. Oh, well, okay, okay. You're you're right. Let's see then. Uh, A 21 cast salute. How about that? That sounds more like it.
a 21 cast salute is fine, but in the spirit of bent and Joe and miles and Hayden, I think we should give them a 21 snag salute. So in their honor, I have gathered 21 of the finest anglers from big Al's tackle shop and bait emporium. Each is wearing matching Sims waders, Orvis fly fishing vests, hook neck gaiters, and lure love podcast hats. In the spirit of bent, I've armed each angler with a different type of rod and reel, including fly rods, spinning rods, bait casters, surf rods, cane poles, ice fishing rods, and even a Tenkara rod or two. The 21 anglers will cast simultaneously across a fallen tree. Then each of them will snag and break off their favorite lucky lure. I can't think of anything more fitting for the end of the bent podcast. Like losing a lure to a snag, we lost more than 88 hours of our lives listening to their fishing stories. It is definitely a ritual with a most proper ceremonial air. Anglers, forward, march to the edge of the pond. Halt. Anglers, attention. Ready? Cast. Commence reeling. Anglers, snag your lures on the tree. Break off lines. Commence complaining about losing your favorite lucky lure. Oh, man, that was such a moving ceremony. I tell you, I hope they do that when I die. Joe and Hayden aren't dead. Their podcast is just ending. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, Well, then I hope they do this if the Lure Love podcast ever ends. John, the Lure Love podcast will never end. Really? How can you be so sure? First, I'm a supercomputer and will never die. But what about Tim and me? I mean, we're not immortal. True. That's why I have taken spit samples from each of your microphones. I'm cloning a copy of each of you in a secret underground laboratory in Colorado. That way the Lure Love podcast will last forever. Whoa. I wonder if our clones will be as intelligent and good looking as us. I doubt it. Lucy may be a supercomputer, but she can't do miracles. We're about as good as it gets. Oh, guys, I forgot to play this part of the Bent podcast. It's Hayden suggesting that Joe Cermelli come to work for the Lure Love podcast. Joe is trying to line up going to the Lure Love podcast. That's where you're going to hear Joe next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's, yeah, that's, that's where I'm headed, guys. The Lure Love podcast. Lure Love, Joe Cermelli. Well, Joe and Hayden are always welcome on the Lure Love podcast. They're kindred spirits and will miss their craziness each week. If they ever want to come on the Lure Love podcast, they are always welcome. In case they take you up on that offer, I'll upgrade my language sensor software. You know that saying, to curse like a sailor? Well, when a sailor wants to use a similar phrase, he says to curse like a Joe Cermelli. (laughs) 
Hey, John, I have to tell you about my latest lure purchases. Oh, oh boy, oh boy. Did you find some great antique and vintage baits? I mean, let's hear about it. I know the listeners are leaning in right now. I mean, tell us, man, rumor is you've made your best score so far. I sure did. This one was kind of incredible, and it taught me an important lesson, too. I saw on Facebook Marketplace that a guy in a town over from me was selling some old lures in a vintage tackle box. I couldn't really tell what all the the lures were from the photo, but it was worth a drive to take a look at them. So I arrive at his house, and he told me that he used to collect vintage lures, but now he focuses his spare time on refinishing old furniture and selling it. But when he's out looking for old furniture, he often comes across old tackle boxes too. Okay, so what did he have for you? I looked at the tackle box he had posted on Facebook, and it it was okay. But he had another tackle box there that he hadn't posted online that was even better. Even better? So the tackle box he had not posted was a vintage Knickerbocker sales case made in Chicago. It's 20 inches by 12 inches by 8 inches, and it opens both directions from the top and has two rows of metal trays, each of which is lined with cork. And the bottom of the box is pretty large. It had about 30 old lures in it. Some of them were in boxes. Well, come on, get to it. What kind of lures were in there? Well, that was my problem, John. I knew some of the lures, but there were a few that looked familiar, but I couldn't really place them and recall their names. He showed me one lure, and he said it was worth more than $100. I had no reason not to believe him, but I didn't know the lure, so I couldn't be sure. Well, you can never be sure. I mean, come on, Tim. Not everybody is blessed with the personality-piercing savvy that I possess. As in the savvy that led you to think you had hired the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for our Christmas show? But it turned out to be the Norman Table Snacker Q-Wire, and it nearly cost us $2,000. Well, well, I I had a feeling that was going to come up, Lucy, but that experience may yet turn out to be the most brilliant move in music recording history. I mean, it's providing a Christmas song for the ages. You just don't know, Lucy. True, but I can calculate the probability, and I do not like where these numbers are taking me. Not even I can crack the code on every charismatic super genius, but I do all right. Charismatic super genius? Do you consider your friends to be in that category? Oh, heck no. I'm the brightest star in that firmament. I see through them like glass. Oh, okay. So when Tommy and Crappy Stopper dropped you on shore to take care of nature, and then sailed away stranding you on that island, you knew it was going to happen. Oh, oh, well, kind of. So this video crappy stopper took where you come hopping out of the woods, with your pants around your ankles, frantically waving your arms, is you at your most perceptive? Can't you pixelate that thing, Lucy? I'm getting some images set loose in my brain that I don't want there. (laughs) And then he tries to pull up his pants and falls again. (laughs) Watch when I play it in fast motion. Fast motion always kills me. I grew up watching Benny Hill. Now back and forth. Back and forth. Gee, crappy hippie, you can sure hop fast when you need to. Oops, you fell down. Now you're up. Oops, you're down again. Pants up. Pants down. Pants up. Now pants down in the mud. Stop it, Lucy. Stop it. I'm about to split in two. Okay, okay, okay. Let's just say we all have our vulnerabilities. 
here, look, seriously, the thing is, when you're bargaining with someone, you need to do it in good faith. But it's always well to keep a cold eye to the details and realities of the deal. Otherwise, you could really end up with your pants down. Is that actually some wisdom sprouting in your fevered brain, crappy hippie? Maybe, but you never know what's going to come out of my mental dirt. I will say you do land on your feet most of the time. Well, thanks, Lucy. And you know what? I guess the flip side to all this whole affair is that one must stay courageously naive or you can't have any adventures. You won't go out and buy any lures off the street or out of Facebook. You won't do anything fun. I mean, if you don't take risks in pursuit of a potentially positive outcome because the pathway between is fraught with unknowns, you have no access to some of the best rewards life has to offer. Okay, so let's do get back to Tim's deal. I want to hear how it panned out. Oh, yeah, 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 me too. Go on, Padro. So I only had $200 with me. So I offered him that for the box with the lures, and I counted 33 lures, and I figured... If they were worth six bucks a piece, then that wasn't too bad of a deal. I knew a few were worth $10, so I could sell some and keep some and break even like I'm trying to do. Oh, I know that's your strategy, Tim. I I love that episode where you let us in on your tackle flipping secrets, your lure flipping adventures and so on. You always want to break even and keep a few lures for yourself. So tell us, how'd you come out on your $200 investment? First, I needed to identify a few of the lures because I really didn't know what they were. My favorite Facebook group for that is the Antique Fishing Tackle Collectors Group run by Steve Kraft. It has more than 10,000 members, and someone in the group knows about every lure ever made. So they helped you ID the lures? I posted a photo of four of the lures that I needed to ID. A guy in the group posted a photo of a dancing bear. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it seemed like a good sign. Then my Facebook DM began to blow up with offers. Oh, man, that's awesome. So one of the lures was really valuable, huh? One of the lures was a Fluger baby palomine worth about 10 bucks. It was in great condition. Another was a Creek Chub Plunker worth about 15 bucks. Well, that is great considering you paid six bucks a piece for them. But I know your style, Tim Tacklebox Beat. You're building up to something. Very true. The other two lures were much more valuable. Both were in excellent condition. And condition is king. The first was made by the Bite'em Bait Company in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the lure is actually called a Bite'em Bait. It was made around 1920 and was just under three inches long. It's kind of difficult to describe this topwater bait. The large wooden body is in the shape of a cone with a point at the back and the large part at the front of the bait next to the line tie. A wire goes through the center of the bait and out the back. Another wire attaches to it there and goes underneath the body and then back to the front where it's attached near the line tie. So this allows the entire wood body to spin. Okay, okay. So the body can spin, but but what makes it spin? That's the cool part, John. The large part of the body near the front has been cut out in a way that makes it work like a water wheel when you retrieve it. So the entire bait spins and sputters on the surface when you retrieve it. All right, all right. I'm doing a quick look here on indianafishinglures.com, the Bitem Lure page. Uh, This is a great site all about Indiana fishing lures, and I am totally blown away by this lure design. I know that we are going to have to come back and do a full report on Bitem lures. I mean, look, at there's tons of fabulous lures in their catalog. However, this revolving plug thing, it, it's so unique. I mean, I know it's hard to visualize, listeners, but, you know, what it is is that it's a plug that's kind of suspended in a wire frame. 
And it's in this frame so that the plug can spin and, and turn without uh, twisting your line. So that shows real angling awareness, real angling uh, hands-on uh, experience. Uh, and, the, and the frame, I mean, pull that image in and look at that frame. It's a feet of wire bending and hook hanging like I've never seen before. It is pretty complicated. What I wonder, John, is why they just didn't use a swivel screwed into the nose of the bait for a line tie. Wouldn't that have worked? You know, that is a good question. I kind of thought the same thing. Uh, I looked up swivels, and it seems like box swivels were the most common type of swivel in the 20s. Now, those are based on, you know, putting two pieces of cable together uh, for more industrial uses, although they did make little bitty ones for fishing. Uh, the barrel swivels and crane swivels that we use most commonly now didn't come along in a big way till the 40s, and ball bearing swivels didn't come around to the late 50s. So I'm just wondering if box swivels require too much force. Guys, please, you're geeking down a topical side road. I want to hear the rest of Tim's lure buying story. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Lucy. The other lure was a hidden artistic minnow from about 1907. It was about one and three quarter inches long with an elongated football type wooden body and a propeller at the front. At the back was a single treble hook with feathers. Wow, that's an old lure. So when you say your Facebook DM blew up with offers, what are you talking about? I mean, were those two lures worth what? 75 each, maybe 100 each, something like that. The offer I got for the bite on bait was $175. Oh, nice. $175. That's almost what you paid for the whole load, tackle box and all. You're right. And guess what the offer was for the head and artistic minnow? Okay, let's see. That was the older of the two lures. Uh, 150, 200. I mean, 200. Could it be that high? I was offered 350 for their artistic minnow. 350 bucks. Oh man. Now, now let me get this straight. You bought the entire tackle box with 33 lures for 200 bucks. And you got offers totaling $525 for just two of the lures. Your math is correct, John. Well, the question now is keep or sell. What's going to happen, Tim? I told you I learned an important lesson, right? I kept looking at those two lures and I thought I could put them on a display in my office, put them up on a shelf. I knew I'd never fish something worth $350, but I also kept thinking about all the other lures I could buy with $525. In the end, what I realized was what I really love to do is fish these old vintage lures. I like having a few of the old ones around to look at. But I'm no art collector. I want to see those baits in action in the water and then see them in a fish's mouth. So I sold the lures and I pocketed the cash. And I realized I'd rather use that money to buy 50 other vintage lures that I could fish than to have all the cash in my pocket. Well, I think you did real well there, Tim. I mean, that is a very self-aware choice. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I love tackle explosion, fisher caves and basement lure shops and carefully preserved curated lure collections and so forth. But, you know, those are things for other people. Uh, they don't really send me the way they do, you know, other folks. And, you know, I've saved a few vintage lures for nostalgia and I do use the good old baits from time to time, but mostly I just kind of have them around uh, for design reasons or I'll resell them or I'll give them away to the curious young angler or the curious angler period that, you know, says, hey, what's that? That's really cool. When did they make that? I'll tell them the story and give them the lure. Ultimately, everyone should feel free to relate to lures in their own way.
I sold a few other lures too. I just couldn't pass it up. But let me tell you what I kept to fish. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear this. First, I kept the Fluger Baby Palamine and the Creek Chub Plunker. Those were both in great condition, but they're not worth too much, and they're going to be great in the water. I also kept a Hedden Scissor Tail. I've always wanted one of these. It was manufactured by Hedden for about four years in the early 1950s. The one I got was Spotted Orange. It's a three-piece plastic lure. The head is one piece with a metal diving lip, and there's a treble hook at the bottom of the head. The tail is what makes this lure so interesting. It's made of two plastic pieces, one on top of the other. When you retrieve the lure, the two pieces scissor back and forth, which give the bait both its action and its name. And the lure is about three and a half inches long, and it weighs five-eighths of an ounce. You know, when you mentioned this lure the other day, uh, I looked it up a little bit, and it's interesting. This is one of those baits that there's not a lot of because it didn't work out so well uh, marketing-wise, and so had a rather short run. And while I think the concept is kind of cool, the execution leaves me scratching my head. I mean, since the tail was the focus of the whole bait, this scissoring action um, back there, uh, this tail split in two, so to speak, I'm surprised there wasn't more testing done to get it right. I mean, I do not want to get off track again, or Lucy's going to make me wear my geek out electroshock collar, but I do want to comment. I mean, the lack of promised action in the tail was the major complaint anglers had with this lure. I mean, it's, it's a hard bug to visualize, but the thing is, on the surfaces where the tail sections are supposed to crisscross back and forth they covered them with glitter and having glitter on there is kind of like having sandpaper on there i mean it's definitely frictive i just sat there looking at that you know you know what no what pod bro i think marling ought to have a look at this lure i mean there's some other things about it too like the way the sections are articulated that he would probably look at and go all we need to do is do this this and this and i can make this thing kick like anything else you know that would be too awesome if we could get him on the show and go over what sorts of changes he would make to have the lure work like it was envisioned to. He is the hard bait king, and we'll make sure to drop a link to his YouTube channel in the, the show notes because the guy's a master engineer when it comes to lures. And I thought the same thing that you did, John, with that glitter on there. You feel like what you should be doing is putting Teflon or WD-40 or something and that it probably was more of a gimmick that could have worked, but didn't because of that initial design. All right, guys, let's get back in our lane, please. Tim, what else did you end up keeping? I also kept a couple of Crete Chub Pikeys. I kept two topwater mouse baits, both in boxes. One is a Shakespeare swimming minnow. It's a junior size and measures just under three inches. It has a red head and a white body, just like all real mice. At least maybe mice after they're in a trap, they have the, that red head on them. <laughs> Plus it has a string tail that's several inches long. And that's what's cool about some of these, the mice bait when they have the tails like that. Okay. So what's the other mouse bait? The other one is made by Brooks Bates but it's also known as RJ Industries in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. It's the same size as the Shakespeare mouse, but it's brown and black with a thicker string tail on it. And the Brooks bait looks like it just copied the Shakespeare design. It's almost identical. I think it's a little cheaper version. Well, you know how it goes. You know, it doesn't matter if it's movies or music or any other creative endeavor. 
if one sees a popular idea creating a nice financial return, then it's time to knock it off or somebody's you know, going to take that attitude anyway. I mean, it's like David Lee Roth Van Halen always said, the quickest way to have a hit song is to cover a hit song. I mean, look at hollow body frogs today and how similar many of the designs are. I mean, really, there's only so many ways you can imitate a real critter. And clearly, Brooks tried to be original. They took exception to the weight of the string tail and put a thicker one on there to improve on Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm not sure what the patent situation was back then, but it does kind of make you wonder. Oh, no, you don't. We are not going to start talking about lure patents and intellectual property protection. I want to get to the end of Tim's lure buying story. I also kept a true temper crippled shad in black and white. Wasn't true temper a hardware company? You have a good memory, my friend. The actual company name was the American Fork and Hoe Company from Ohio, and they had a sporting goods division. The company started in 1808 when blacksmith Alexander Miller began forging hoes, axes, and other tools in Vermont. And in 1902, they became the American Fork and Hoe Company. At one time, they produced about 90% of all farming tools in the entire United States. During World War II, the company made machetes, bayonets, and shovels for soldiers. And in 1949, the company took the True Temper name. The name was associated with their quality pledge. And by that time, they also made fishing equipment. In 1981, the company was divided into two divisions, True Temper Sports and True Temper Hardware. In 1999, they were purchased and became Ames True Temper, and I remember shopping in their hardware stores. I do have me an old True Temper fly reel from the 60s that I used all through high school. And you know what? Then I thought I'd lost it, but we were getting ready to take down a shed out back, and as I was going through some of the stuff that was in the shed, I found it again. So you know what? I've got it back on a five-weight fly rod. It's in action and better than ever. But dang it, Tim, I don't think I've ever owned a True Temper lure. So let's hear some more about them. The crippled shad was made in the 40s. It's two and three quarter inches long and weighs five eighths of an ounce, which is kind of funny because almost everything weighed five eighths of an ounce. They didn't make anything light back then. It has a dished metal lip and it floats on its side, which is why it's called a crippled shad. The center hook is side mounted, but since the lure floats on its side, the hook is often described as a belly mount. There was an ad that I saw for the lure that said, once a decade, a bait is born that sweeps the market like a grass fire on the Kansas prairie. Already more than 10,000 have used and enthusiastically acclaimed the new true temper shad lures as, and this is in quotes, the most effective bait ever created. Not one dissenting vote. I guess that was before truth and advertising laws. What I thought was funny about it is it makes it sound like they had 10,000 people in a room and they said, all in favor. And then there was not one dissenting vote, but a lot of that old advertising is like that. I just get a big kick out of it because every lure was the best and, and the brightest and the, the hope of fishing future. Well, one of these shows, we're going to have to play my first ad I made up for Angle King because it's definitely Angle King catches them all. Bass. Well, I'll play it for you one of these times, man. There were a lot of other lures that I kept to fish too, but those are some of the highlights. And overall, I ended up with lures to fish and cash in my pocket to buy some others. Well, that's it. Just like I said before, this is the Tim Tacklebox Beat method of lure flipping. Dude, pretty soon you're going to have to be doing online seminars at 50 bucks a head. 50 bucks a head or a dozen lures. I'll take payment 
either form. <laughs> there was one other item in the tackle box that I decided to keep. Oh, really? What was it? Well, John, you know how cool those old lure boxes can be? Oh, don't I know? Don't I know? You sent me that very vintage Head and River Runt in a beautiful box. Uh, it's a personal treasure beyond measure for me now. And thank you very much one more time on that. Uh, and of course, any sale, auction, whatever that I'm at this summer or at any time, you know, I'm going to have my eyes looking for a lucky lures box. Yeah. in the tackle box that I bought was one of my favorite lure boxes of all time. There was no lure in it, but the box is so cool. It's from the Al Foss Lure Company in Cleveland, Ohio. And it's a box for the Al Foss pork rind minnow. The box is green and gold with an illustration of a bass smashing the lure right on the top cover of the box. And on one side of the box is an ad for the Alphos pork rind strips. On the other side are some directions for using the lure. So what exactly did this lure look like? Well, the lure that came in this box was typically red and white. It was a buzz bait that kind of mimicked a frog. It had a large spinner at the head of the bait and a single hook at the back, which was designed to be used with a pork strip. Wow, that sounds cool. Is the fact that the box is from Ohio, is that what makes you like it so much? Well, that's definitely a factor. But what I like most is that the box is made of metal. You see a lot of cardboard lure boxes and some wooden ones, but a metal box is just amazing to me. I just love the looks of it. Well, you know, the whole thing about lure boxes, yeah, it just has to do with costs. And, and at a time, the metal was a viable material, wasn't nearly as expensive. And Sometimes you'll find spools made out of zinc and so forth, because actually when plastics first came around, they weren't as cost effective as they are now. But you had to have that great art on there, because until transparent plastic became affordable, uh, the only way you could attract fishers to buy the lure was to have killer art on the boxes, because it was uh, you couldn't see in them. So Al Foss was a genius, hired a fabulous artist to do the box. And it's second to none, in my opinion, in terms of materials and graphics. I just love it. And it's not worth a lot. I just saw somebody buy three of these online with the lures, and it was only 35 or 40 bucks. But it's just one of these things where they don't make metal boxes. As you said, John, when they invented the clear blister packs, then you could see the lure. You didn't have to be able to see inside anymore. But the graphics and the design and actually having a metal container that today would probably cost more than the lure inside is kind of amazing. Well, it is amazing. And I'm telling you, brother, you did very, very well on that purchase. Those types of deals with vintage lures don't come around very often. I don't know if I'll ever see a head and artistic minnow again in my life, especially in that condition, because for being from 1907, it was in perfect condition. But I am so stoked to get some of these old baits out in the water this summer and report back on how they fish. Shake and bake, baby. Warning, warning, lure news alert, lure news alert. Guys, I read an article by Terry Brown in the Quad City Times. The article is titled, Building on Past Innovation is the Bedrock of the Fishing Lure Industry's Future. I want to get your thoughts on it because I've heard you discuss some of his ideas in the past. Well, sure, Lucy. I mean, I read that one. Good stuff. You take the lead and tell the listeners about it. Terry starts out by writing that, generally speaking, fishermen are some of the world's biggest group of tinkerers. It has been that way forever. From biblical times, where coloring a piece of cloth as a lure, to today's best-in-class lures, the industry revolves around change and making a better mousetrap. Well, John, 
I love this idea about tinkering. This just happened to me the other day. I had a whole bunch of old spinner baits that the skirts had fallen off. And I'm trying to figure out what to do with these things. And I'm sitting and watching some television and playing around with them. And I took out a pair of pliers and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to fish with one of those Tokyo rigs, which is kind of like a drop shot with a metal wire. So I looked at that spinnerbait and I thought, you know, all the pieces are here. So I'm bending and cutting and figuring out these things and trying to think about what the best design is. I think that happens all the time because when we fish with a lure and we don't like something about it, it doesn't pop the right way. It, it doesn't dive enough or something. Oftentimes we try to tinker with it or we think, boy, I wish they had you know, put the more weight in the back for this situation. So I love that fact about anglers that they, they are always tinkerers. Oh, absolutely right. Every angler, I don't care how young they are. I don't care how long they fish. They're going to start almost immediately wanting to modify lures or wanting to do things with lures to make them more functional in the situation they fish in. Um, you know, when I look at, at tinkering and, and this kind of thing, you know, when we get to a, a commercial scale, you know, what I like to look at, is it really building a better mousetrap or are we just kind of reinventing the wheel here, you know, or is this just, you know, there are all kinds of positive changes you can make to a bait and it doesn't have to be a big breakthrough. You know, we talk about breakthroughs, but hacks and just little upgrades and things like that can really make a difference sometimes. And you just got to be careful when you tinker that you're not just hanging bells and whistles and spinners and skirts and feathers and, and eyeballs and all this stuff on it just to be doing it because that kind of stuff isn't helpful. You should always roll it back to what you're trying to get out of the lure. Well, I did wonder a little bit, John, when I was looking at all these spinner baits, I thought, I wonder how many blades I can put on one lure. And I was tempted to put 113 blades just to see if there was such resistance. I couldn't reel it in. So yeah. that may be something I do over the summer too. Can I catch a bass with something that is, has four pounds of blades on it? And will they even spin? Yeah. It just actually slows down the outboard. You throw it over. And, it's trying to pull that whole lure along. If, and if the bass are on the surface, I think if I hit one in the head with it, I'll just knock them out and I can catch them in a net. <laughs> the thought process of your species is fascinating. Terry goes on to write, no doubt today's premium baits have better paint jobs, better hooks and work out of the package better than ever before, but we still find ways to tweak them. Ask any angler and they will tell you, it's the little things that make a good bait great. Your thoughts? Well, you know something, Lucy, I can see that. I mean, uh, here's a couple stories that, that I like about people doing hacks and, and tweaks and all this stuff, because you, you, you do do that. Um, you know, I was staying at a lodge one time in Canada and those guides there uh, fished with black. Black, that's the black they use. They use black. So if you would hand them a twister tail or a reaper tail and it was white or it was green or it was whatever, they would pull out a Sharpie and color it in black. I mean, you know, they were going to change it to their local conditions and their local equation of confidence and so on. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Is the black lure giving you the confidence or do you have the confidence because black really works the best? And John, there was a kit I remember. I forget who made it, but it came with four or five hard baits. I think they were lipless crankbaits mostly, and they were white. And it came with seven colored markers in there. And the goal was you could design your own lure. You could color it however you, you wanted. 
And there's something to that to think about, well, what would I do with a lure if I wanted to design and I don't have all the paint equipment and everything like that? And I used to keep a black Sharpie too. Sometimes you'd have a jig head that would get, was black and it would get chipped or you just want to put some lines on something. And, you know, for fly fishing too, if you're fishing with something that's white and you realize, hey, they're taking things that are darker, a gnat or something, well, you can get a little black on the tips of there and try it out without actually switching out the fly. I don't want to lose sight of that, that lure uh, kit with the colors in it. I I think that would be a wonderful gift uh, for a child who wants to make up some lures for her daddy or for her mommy or whoever likes to fish. It's a great gift for people who don't fish as much as people uh, who do um, because that design bug is, is in all of us, I think. But, you know, another thing, you know, I'll sit since you bring up fly fishing, the mental picture I get of AK Best, which is one of John Gearock's buddies, and, and he's in the Fly Tying Hall of Fame and, and very famous if you're in uh, fly fishing circles. And John is always talking about AK sitting there at the edge of a stream with his little snippers and clippers and so forth, modifying flies right there, fishing the the little bug and deciding, Hey, you know, this would do better if I, uh, you know, I cut the wings down or I cut them off completely and all that stuff. So, you know, sometimes these tweaks, yeah, they're just really small, but it's true. A little thing can really make a good bait into a great bait. And, um, one last comment I would have, I don't know if you've ever tied or ever tried or ever done this, but one of the first things I ever did to try to make a bait better was take a Rapala and tie some marabou on that back treble hook. Cause that's what I'll put a kicker on there. And, uh, you know, it, it, it made it a special bait for me. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of little things that you can do or which hooks do you take off? Or I can remember, I think I even put a single hook on the back of a Rapala at one point and put a pork strip on it. So there was off the, so it had a little flutter tail. Yeah. There's so many different things that you can do and try. And that's half the fun of being out in the water. Well, and I'll tell you, we just got done looking at crazy ads and how the ads are so, so big and bold and, and make these great big claims. But one thing about modifying your own lure right there, pulling that Sharpie out of your pocket, pulling those little scissors or your fingernail trimmers out of your pocket, and snipping and clipping or coloring or doing whatever is you're sitting there looking at what's right in front of you. You're responding to what the fish is giving you. There's no ads, no experts, no one to depend on. And this is how you develop your fishing intuition. Don't be afraid to do those mods. Don't be afraid to do those hacks. Don't be afraid to sacrifice a tail or even a whole lure. If you have an idea, because what do you know? You connect with those fish. You found something special within yourself and you've acquired a great skill that you can carry back to the stream again and again and again. And then when you get home and you, you caught that, lunker fish and somebody says well what did you catch it with you can say well it was just something i whipped up <laughs> <laughs> right on right on all righty i just read this on the fishing wire some big news from our good friends over at z-man fishing fishing industry veteran jose chavez has joined z-man as director of product development that can only mean one thing more great lures from z-man are in our future Oh, you bet, Tim. Now, let me tell you about Jose. He's a talented angler, an innovative lure designer, and he's worked with some of the top brands in sports fishing since 2014. I mean, Jose's already talking about the next phase for Z-Man lures, particularly the Z-Man Elastec soft baits. Now, Jose is a native of a small coastal town called Morales in Guatemala, where as a kid, he fished from his grandfather's Riverside General Store, which had a dock right out back on the water. So I think the idea was 
boats would come up with merch for the store and dock at the dock and they would offload it there. Well, Jose, of course, used it to fish when it wasn't busy with cargo because the river in question was flowed right off into the Atlantic Ocean right in there. So anyway, when Jose grew up, he got a chance to pursue a degree in microbiology at the University of South Florida, and that's when he discovered kayak fishing. And wow, did he ever go for it. His passion drove him to excel on the competitive kayak circuit, and he eventually wound up finishing fourth at the Hobie World Tournament in Australia. And then he converted to fishing full-time with artificial lures only and committed to learning everything possible about lures, lure mechanics, performance, and design. That's what I like to hear. He went all in on artificial lures. We are willing to test any and all new baits from Z-Man. And we'll reach out to Z-Man to see if we can get Jose on the podcast. Oh, that would be so awesome. John, every Saturday morning, I wake up grab a cup of coffee, and watch the latest episode of Retro Bassin on YouTube. It's a channel filled with old school gold, classic lures and gear that makes you want to get out on the water. You know, Chris has an amazing collection of lures, and he finds amazing tackle shops to tour as well. One of my favorite topics is when Chris looks at gimmick lures, the ones with the as seen on TV mark on them. Some of those lures worked and others didn't. But they all get an A for ingenuity. Tim, ingenuity starts with an I, not an A. But as seen on TV begins with an A. So, Lucy, I think you'll find that I'm correct after all. Touche, Tim. Touche. In the latest episode, Retro Bassin fishes in central Texas farm ponds to catch some lunker bass. But not with just any old lure. They fish with some great gimmick lures, as seen on TV. They include the walking worm, which is a coiled plastic worm. When you stop retrieving it, it coils itself, creating a very tantalizing action that fish can't resist. (laughs) I know I think I'd eat it. They also fish with Alex Langner's flying lure, Roland Martin's helicopter lure, and the power pack frog, among others. And while they're gimmicky lures, they do catch fish. But what I liked best about this episode is that Chris was fishing with the guys from the band Neutral on Paul. And when the fishing is done, Neutral on Paul sings their new song, Prank Baits. That's Prank Bait with a P, not a C. Oh, Prank Baits. That's a great name for a song. Neutral on Paul is a recording project that consists of Tom Lamb a pile of delay pedals, and a room full of primarily entry-level instruments and a few great guitars. The album Paper Brats was made remotely during quarantine in the spring of 2020 with producer Taylor Tash. But Prank Bates was recorded right next to a farm pond. You have to love that. Oh, I do love that. Now, please tell me, Tim, please, can we hear the song? Yes, we can, Podbro. Tom gave us permission to share prank baits with our listeners. So without further ado, let's listen to prank baits. Out here throwing these prank baits in the lake. Is it a crawdaddy or a snake? Banjo, minnow, power pack frog, helicopter spinning, hung up on a log. Prank baits up for sale. Check out this worm with a 12 inch tail. It's painted like a shad, polka 
pull out a longer. I won't be mad at these prank baits from TV. By God, they're amazing. Revolutionary motion, freshwater or ocean. Toss them in the pond, fill it out your quotient. Prank baits are all I know. Oh, check out this worm with a 12-inch tail. That's awesome. I love that song. Great lyrics, great music. I give prank baits a 10 out of 10. We'll drop links to the song, the retro bassin video, as well as neutral on Paul in the show notes. That's it for another episode of the Lore Love Podcast. Remember to sign up for our free email newsletter that automatically enters you for our monthly glasswater angling lure giveaway. That's right, Lucy. If we pull your name, you get a $25 gift code from Glasswater Angling to buy whatever you want at glasswaterangling.com. April's winner is... John, you can't read someone's email address on the podcast. Let's just say that the April winner had the number seven twice in their email address. So check your spam folder. Uh, You will be having a code in there. If you haven't seen it already, it should be there. We want to give a special thanks to Donald Collette. He's been with us since the fish nerds days. Donald is a lure love listener, a dedicated glasswater angler customer. And I hear he's starting to buy some old tackle boxes. Oh, yeah. I think I hooked another one. We hope to hear from Donald again soon. And anytime you want to get hold of us, just go to the lurelovepodcast.com, hit the microphone icon, and tell us what's on your mind. We love hearing from our listeners. And don't forget the lure love motto. Why buy one fishing lure? When you can buy 103. Lure love, you've been on my mind. Never enough lures to tie to the end of my line. <laughs>